Today on Categorical Imperatives, we are going to be going over an article from the Tenth Amendment Center called Is Paper Money Constitutional? Uh, because we got to talk about how they managed to get absolutely everything wrong. Hey, greetings, and welcome back once again to Categorical Imperatives. As always, I am your host, Lockheed and Liberal, and I do want to thank you all so much for being here with me today. Now, if you are new to the program, I especially want to welcome you. This is a podcast where we're going to be discussing legal theory and moral philosophy as it relates to current, event, current events in law, politics, and culture. Now, real quickly, I just want to remind you guys that if you like the show, and you support what I do, and you want to help me uh, just kind of spread this message, uh, teach people about law and the Constitution and all of these great things that I do. Uh, there's several ways you can do it. There's Venmo, there's PayPal. The best thing to do is to go to Patreon and become a patron because you get a bunch of extra goodies uh, if you sign up and become a monthly patron there. So uh, if you are able to give and you are able to help support the show, I would greatly appreciate it. All right. So. To be honest, I am really surprised that I even have to make this video. And I want to be perfectly clear that I get no joy from this. Um, but I believe strongly in correcting myself when I'm publicly in error. And for others who are uh, on my side, if you will, you know, whether I mean, you know, people with any group which I, you know, ally with, uh, which I would argue it's even more important to hold them accountable than people you uh, disagree with to a certain degree, if that makes sense. But I, I just want to be clear that I have the greatest respect for the guys at the Tenth Amendment Center, Mike Meharry and Michael Bolden, uh, and as well as this article's author, Jacob Hornberger. Um, and going up against them and saying that they are wrong about the Constitution, uh, it kind of makes me feel like uh, Lionel Hutz being confronted by uh, with Mr. Burns's uh, ten high-powered attorneys. So, do you think I have a case? Mrs. Simpson, you're in luck. Your sexual harassment suit is just the thing I need to rebuild my shattered practice. Care to join me in a belt of scotch? It's 9.30 in the morning. Yeah, but I haven't slept in days. Last chance. Oh, yeah. Mr. Burns, we've got witnesses, precedent, and a paper trail a mile long. Yes, well, I have ten high-priced lawyers. <laughs> he left his briefcase. Hey, it's full of shredded newspapers. So anyways, my point being that uh, I, I will always check and recheck things when I disagree with them to try and understand why I'm wrong, because... Usually that's the case. Uh, but here, I am very much not in the wrong. Uh, and the problem is that uh, the Tenth Amendment Center forgets themselves. And one thing that I really love about those guys over at the Tenth Amendment Center is that they really understand and apply uh, what James Madison was very insistent upon. And that is that the meaning of the Constitution is not to be found in the convention that drafted it, 
but from the people of the several states who ratified it. The Constitution, uh, that the 1787 Philadelphia uh, Convention gave us, uh, didn't give us the supreme law of the land. All it really gave us was a sheet of parchment with a few ideas scribbled down on it about what they think would maybe constitute good government. The document's primary meaning should always first come from the ratification debates. This is where uh, judges and lawyers at the time all agreed was the place to look to understand the meaning of a document such as a constitution. Now, one could say it uh, not only had no force of law, but you could also say, in a sense, it had no objective meaning before the ratification debates. Uh, it was the people who ratified the document that gave it the meaning it had as they debated its passage. That is crucial. Now, this, me this method dictates that what can't be found in the very text itself and what cannot be found in a complete or satisfactory sense in the ratification debates, uh, once you reach that point, then uh, one can turn to other things such as original public meaning of the document to help clarify what may not be perfectly clear uh, from the ratification conventions alone. So, and it is there then that we turn to the framers of the Philadelphia Convention uh, and the public articles and essays from the Federalist and Anti-Federalist arguing publicly uh, as they assert what the Constitution does and does not mean. Uh, and of course, we also use when proper antecedent laws. Uh, and this is something that I think Many modern constitutional uh, advocates who haven't gone to law school maybe uh, get wrong here is they haven't gone through a certain process of learning to uh, think like a lawyer, and in some ways they are at a disadvantage. Now, don't get me wrong. This goes both ways, absolutely. People who have never been to law school, never got a law degree, never practiced law, they don't have a bunch of stupid bullshit that isn't true it's just absolute nonsense that they have to try to unlearn that was drilled into them uh, in school. And unfortunately, that kind of bullshit does permeate the whole experience. So one isn't better than the other. It's just different. That's all. Um, no one side is really more qualified than the other to make these interpretations after all. But to show you what I mean, I want to share... Uh, this is from a letter by James Madison to Richard Henry Lee when he said, I entirely concur with the propriety of resorting to the sense in which the Constitution was accepted and ratified by the nation. In that sense alone is the legitimate Constitution, uh, is, uh, is the legitimate Constitution, and if that is not the guide in expanding it, there can be no security in a consistent uh, and stable and a more faithful exercise of its powers. Now, over a century ago, uh, the Supreme Court decided uh, what be became known as the legal tender cases, where they held that Congress could authorize legal tender paper money in addition to metallic coins. Now, in recent years, some commentators have argued that this holding was incorrect as a matter of original understanding or of original public meaning. They further argue that the impracticality of functioning without paper money demonstrates that uh, originalism is not a workable method of constitutional interpretation sometimes, too. But anyway, those who rely um, on uh, the legal tender cases to, uh, uh, 
to discredit originalism or who say that they were not decided along originalist lines uh, are really arguing in error. Uh, and I want to show that uh, that holding, uh, though not necessarily all of the reasoning of those cases, was fully and uh, fully consistent with the original understanding of the clauses in question, which are the coinage clause and the state coinage clause. Now, the official money of the United States today uh, is paper currency. Oh, hang on. I'm sorry here. Why don't I bring up the article real quick? So just want to show you guys here. Uh, this is the article that we are talking about. Uh, I'm not going to have it up on the screen the whole time. I'm going to kind of be reading it and uh, going through it piece by piece here. Uh, but there will be a link to the article down in the description. I do encourage you guys to go uh, and, and pull it up for yourselves and read it for yourselves and then maybe even follow along with me while I am uh, kind of going back and forth between quoting from the article and giving my reply to it. So Jacob starts out the article by saying that the official money of the United States today is paper currency, but that's clearly not what the Constitution says. It says that gold and silver coins shall be the nation's currency. Now, that claim is false. That is completely false. Uh, this is wrong because he is confusing two separate constitutional clauses. He is mixing up first Article 1, Section 8, Clause 5, which says, the Congress shall have the power to coin money, regulate the value thereof, and of foreign coin. And the second clause, that, that first one there, that is known as the coinage clause. And this is what is known as the state coinage clause. Article 1, Section 10, Clause 1, that says, No state shall coin money amid bills of credit, make anything but gold or silver coin a tender in legal payment of debts. So, as you can see, neither clause actually says what he claims. Making gold and silver tender in payments of debt is a restriction placed on the state, not a power that is granted to the nation uh, and its currency. So, he doesn't understand that Article 1, Section 8 is the section of the Constitution that grants Congress its enumerated powers while Section 10 is a list of several, uh, several things that the states are not allowed to do. Now, what he skips entirely here uh, is the fact that in Article 1, Section 9, there is actually a list of things that Congress specifically cannot do. So you have Article 1, Section 8 that says what Congress can do. You have Article 1, Section 9 that says what Congress can't do. And then you have Article 1, Section 10, which says what the states can't do. So all of these different articles do very different things. So the fact that he keeps mixing up clauses in Section 8 and Section 10 and muddling them together as though they're one clause is a big deal because these mean very different things. They affect very different things and they say very different things. So and what's interesting is in Article 1, Section 9, where it has uh, uh, the, the prohibitions on Congress. Uh, what's interesting is you find a lot of the same points made there that you see in Article 1, Section 10. So, for example, Section 9 and Section 10 both have uh, clauses about 
uh, no uh, passing no bills of attainder or ex post facto laws. And so the fact that Article 1, Section 9, that's the restriction on Congress, does not have uh, anything that is comparable to this, to the state coinage clause. The no state shall coin money, emit bills of credit, make anything but gold and silver, tender or payment of debts. There's nothing in Article 1, Section 9, anything like that. So the fact is that there's no reason to think that this clause here should also apply to Congress because the place where Congress's prohibitions are, it isn't there. And you'll notice that what he said uh, just right away, the first thing he said was that uh, it says that gold and silver coins shall be the nation's currency. But that's not what it says anywhere in either of those two clauses. He is just completely mixing them up. Uh, but neither of them actually say that. All right. Now, uh, Jacob goes on to say, uh, how is that possible? I thought the Constitution was supposed to be the highest law of the land. I also thought that it was the responsibility of the U.S. Supreme Court to enforce the Constitution. Why then are the are Americans living under a paper money monetary system rather than the uh, system stipulated by the Constitution? Now, to answer that, the first thing is that the Supreme Court doesn't uh, enforce the Constitution. Uh, nothing anywhere ascribes that duty to them whatsoever. Uh, really, he just made that up. Uh, and in fact, the judiciary, according to Federalist 78, the purpose of the judiciary is that the interpretation of the laws is the proper and peculiar province of the court. Enforcement of the Constitution, which is what he has already claimed is the court's role, and which, as you will see, he claims over and over and over again for some reason is the court's role, uh, is not something that they are... The enforcement of the Constitution is the duty of the president. That's why he's called the executive. That's why the presidential oath in Article 2, Section 1, Clause 8 says... I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of the President and of the United States and will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. Execution of the laws is the job of the executive, not the judiciary. And yet, as you will see, he keeps going back uh, over and over and over again to this idea that the judiciaries are the ones who enforce the laws, which is really odd. It makes absolutely no sense. Now, uh, he goes on to say, Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution gives Congress the power to, quote, coin money. It is not given any power to print money. Coining money is not printing money, he says. And at the risk of belaboring the obvious, coining money entails making coins out of metals. Now, this is one of the first of many times where you're going to see Jacob moving the goalpost. Now, he started by saying, nothing but gold and silver shall be the nation's currency. Uh, he's speaking about the power granted to Congress. Now he, switch, uh, uh, now he switches over to Article 1, Section 8, and he says it grants the power to coin only. So he is now quoting from Article 1, Section 10, as though he's speaking about Article 1, Section 8. 
Now, he also makes this odd, well, I guess, this somewhat odd assumption that coining money, according to him, obviously and only means making coins out of metal. But nowhere does it say out of metal. Again, he's just making that up. Now, second, he assumes that coin money means making coins. And while it's not an unreasonable hypothesis to to think that that's what it meant, uh, that it is contradicted by a number of contemporaneous legal and historical facts. Now, in the founding era discourse, the verb to coin had two common meanings. The first one was to make metallic coins, and the second one was to fabricate or create. Now, the second meaning survives today in sayings such as to coin a phrase. And during the founding era, however, the second meaning was a much, much more common one than the first one is, uh, although it would be somewhat the opposite today. Now, you, the thing is, you hear people speak of, of coining all kinds of things. You, you'll hear people talk about coining paper or coining leather, which is to make leather money and the like. And I know what you're thinking. No one's made leather money. Leather money. Yes, actually, they have. Uh, leather has been used to make coins. James II did in England, as did several of the American colonies. And a little later, uh, I am going to be discussing. Uh, well, actually, this is going to be in my next episode tomorrow, uh, where I'm going to be talking about some of these issues more. But I'm going to be discussing what is a hugely surprising uh, list of things that the founders, uh, in their own lifetimes, while they were still English colonies, but I mean within the lifetime of the founders, that the colonies used for money. They used everything from tobacco to beeswax to musket balls to leather to wampum and more. These were all official currencies at one time or another in one or more colony. So, as far as the term coin, which of the two meanings appears in the Constitution? Well, by closely examining the Constitution's text, you can see that the second meaning is simply more probable. We will be discussing why it is more probable later, but in brief, if coin referred only to metal tokens, then Congress's power to regulate value, which is set exchange rates, would mean that they only are able to regulate the value of foreign metal coins, but not foreign paper. That makes no sense. Also, why limit the power uh, at the dividing line of metal versus paper? Prior history has shown that there was little practical difference between forging money from paper and forging it from scraps of tin. So if the coinage... If the coinage clause was intended to limit Congress to uh, valuable coins, then why didn't the coinage clause specify gold and silver coins the way Article 1, Section 10, Clause 1 did? Now, Jacob goes on to say that the framers preferred coins made from gold and silver. How do we know this? Because Article 1, Section 10, which states in part, no state shall make anything but gold and silver coin a tender in payment of debts. Now, here, once again, you can see that he is shifting the goalpost, and he now pretends that Article 1, Section 10 is 
the authoritative clause on what Congress can do when it's not. Second, saying some people preferred coins has to be one of the worst arguments I have ever heard anyone make ever. On this point, frankly, both Jacob and the guys at the 10th Amendment Center should be genuinely embarrassed for even publishing that. Uh, to base your constitutional construction on what some people at a certain point in time kind of preferred is a living constitutional argument. He's not saying that it's what people prefer today, but he is assuming that the correct way to read the Constitution is a complete abandonment of both textual and originalist interpretation for personal preference of assumption and convenience. That is living constitutional bullshit. Do you have any evidence at all? Well, Your Honor, we've got plenty of hearsay and conjecture. Those are kinds of evidence. Now, he goes on to say, it would be difficult to get any clearer than that. So the question naturally arises, why have the states made paper money a tender in payment of debts, given that the Constitution expressly limits them to only making gold and silver coin legal tender? And why hasn't the Supreme Court forced the states to comply with the Constitution? Now, at this point, it really seems like this guy is letting his bias get the best of him. I, I mean, this is indefensible. He has gone from inconsistency between one point and another to a point here where his claims are now internally inconsistent and he's contradicting himself within the same sentence. The states have not made paper money a tender in payment of debts. The federal government has made it a legal tender. Again, an originalist reading of Section 8, Clause 5 suggests that by the evidence I just pre previously provided, uh, that we could suffice to say that uh, he can't show any example of a state printing money because that's not what any of them do. It's the federal government that prints money, and the federal government has the power to do that. Now, the power to define what is and is not legal tender, according to Article 1, Section 8, Clause 5, is in the hands of the federal government. This is why the Treasury has always existed. We have not always had a central bank, but we have had a Treasury. And while there are indeed good gaps of time where our Treasury did not issue paper money, an honest reading of the coinage clause, according to the original meaning of the ratifiers, would clearly include paper currency. Now, a clear reading of to coin money as used in the coinage clause includes making paper notes, as what I've said. And once again, I, he just goes right back to this thing with the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court does not enforce the Constitution. He's just going to keep saying this again and again, as though saying it enough makes it true. But that is not their function. They aren't doing it because it would be a constitutional crisis if they did. They interpret the law. The president executes the law. All right, Jacob goes on to say, equally important, why has the Supreme Court failed to force the federal government to comply with the Constitution? He said it is clear by the express language of the Constitution, uh, the framers as well as our American ancestors not only favor gold and silver coins as the official money of the United States, but also engrafted such a system onto the Constitution itself. Isn't it the responsibility of the Supreme Court to enforce the Constitution? Jesus Christ. 
I mean, with all due respect here to both Jacob and the guys at the 10th Amendment Center who reviewed and edited this article before publishing it on their site, like, I genuinely have a hard time comprehending how such a, a glaringly obvious game of constitutional knifey spoonie. You call that a knife? This is a knife. That's not a knife, that's a spoon. All right, all right, you win. <laughs> I see you've played knifey spoonie before. I don't get how such an obvious case of, like, constitutional knifey spoony uh, passed and how, how it's up there. I mean, uh, you know, he's basically saying, you know, enforcing the law, that's the court's job, you know. No, that's not. That's not an Article 3. That's an Article 2. Ah, I see you've played constitutional knifey spoony before. It just, it, I, I mean, it... it... This, this makes no sense. He's just making stuff up and saying things belong one place where they don't. Um, yeah. And, and the Constitution, again, he keeps talking about how uh, there was a, this preference. Uh, what does he say? Uh, that there was a preference in the Constitution and the framers and our American ancestors. A Constitution doesn't have a preference. Our framers and ancestors may have preferences. All people do. Legal documents have meaning. Meaning is not preference. And it doesn't matter how many times you say the judiciary enforces the law that doesn't make it true. That makes this article embarrassing. Uh, I, I mean, this is a call for living constitutionalism and judicial activism. Uh, two things that we constitutional conservatives are supposed to not really be okay with. Now, he goes on to say... It was President Franklin Roosevelt who, along with Congress, abrogated America's founding monetary system. Citing the economic emergency of the Great Depression, Roosevelt and his Congress decreed that America would no longer use gold and silver coins as its official money. Instead, it would resort to paper money as its official money. None of that is true. That is patently false. We used paper money before Franklin Delano Roosevelt. We have been using it consistently since the Federal Reserve was chartered in 1913. But that's not even the only time that we have used paper money. We have used it, on, we used it under the Articles of Confederation, um, and we've used it for a number of decades in the 1800s, uh, for several decades in the late 1800s, actually. For example... Here is a $20 banknote issued by the Treasury in 1891. Now, what he is talking about is, is President Franklin Delano Roosevelt's Executive Order 6102, which in 1933 required Americans to surrender much of their gold to the government. This Executive Order 6102 was issued in extremists within a month of FDR's inauguration. And while 6102 required much of the gold being held by Americans to be surrendered to the government. It also provided for owners to be compensated. Uh, now, I would argue that the price paid by the government was too low, uh, mainly because uh, owners were paid $20.67 per troy ounce. However, immediately following the surrender period, the Gold Reserve Act was passed. In 1934, and that raised the price of gold to $35 per ounce. 
effectively declaring an immediate government profit of $14.33 for each ounce of gold collected. Nevertheless, sellers were compensated for the official price under the gold standard. Uh, so kind of two final points here about this. Contrary to conventional wisdom, not all gold was subject to Executive Order 6102. Gold, gold coins with a numismatic value were exempt, as was gold uh, used in manufacturing, in dentistry, in jewelry production. Moreover, each person in a household could, re could retain up to five troy ounces of gold bullion. Now, just to be clear here, I, I contend that what Roosevelt did here was unquestionably constitutional. This was a violation of our original natural right, the right to property. I, I mean, it, it wasn't just unconstitutional, it was downright fucking immoral. I mean, FDR was a goddamn tyrant who should have left office swinging from a rope. But the point of this article is to examine the accuracy of Jacob's claims, not to make value judgments about a uh, despicable person doing despicable things. So, Jacob goes on to say that Roosevelt then went a step further. He ordered everyone turn in their gold coins to the federal government. In return, they would receive paper money. Any who, anyone who was caught owning gold coins, would ha, uh, had been, which had been the official legal money of the American people for more than a century, would be criminally prosecuted for a felony. Now here, once again, Jacob is getting things embarrassingly wrong. He didn't order everyone turn in all their gold. First of all, the Gold Act did that, but as we just heard, gold coins were exempt. Jacob said it was all gold coins and seems to imply only gold coins when that's the opposite of the truth. It was all gold that wasn't coins. Plus the five ounces each family member could continue to own, plus the exemptions for things such as jewelry and stuff like that. Now, again, I'm not suggesting that what happened was less awful, awful than what Jacob is claiming, but the problem is that just about everything he is saying is factually untrue. Now, the Tenth Amendment Center is absolutely one of the best sources um, online for this kind of history. And it just when a stellar organization like theirs prints such facially untrue nonsense, I, I mean, this will mislead people who will mostly and rightfully trust the information that they are getting from these guys to get their facts right, um, you know, before they attempt to make claims about those facts. When your facts are wrong, the claims you extrapolate will be wrong, and I am incredibly disappointed how carelessly they have printed an article like this that I have been entirely able to debunk on its face. Now, I have uh, another episode. I, I've written another article. I, this really got me worked up, though. I've written an art another article uh, that I will be putting out later today or tomorrow. Uh, this one did take me a great deal of time, and I'm going to be telling what is actually, I think, a very intriguing story of the colonial America's extraordinary monetary innovations. I'm going to be examining contemporaneous law and language and showing how the paper money question was addressed during the framing and the ratification of the Constitution. But anyways, to get back to Jacob's article, he goes on to say, 
There was at least one big problem, however, with Roosevelt's actions. He didn't secure a constitutional amendment prior to nationalizing gold and making paper money legal tender. Remember, the Constitution is the highest law of the land. It controls the actions of the President and Congress. The executive and legislative branches cannot amend the Constitution. They are required to comply with the Constitution. And actually, I would say the one big problem is the way he pretty much gets everything wrong yet again. To say FDR nationalized the gold isn't accurate in two different ways. First, it implies uh, the more general order came from his executive order, but it didn't. That was passed as an emergency measure, uh, and that's what in extremists meant. It, now, it was an act of Congress that called in the gold kind of wholesale there. Uh, and as I have said many times already, the Constitution already gives Congress the power to create legal tender and regulate what legal tender is and define its worth. So while I think the Gold Act's calling in of Americans' gold was both unconstitutional and immoral, there is an argument to be made that the Takings Clause of the Fifth Amendment gives them the right to do such things. Now, I will be getting into this in the next video and explaining why I think the Gold Act and the constitutional violations uh, were, why it was clearly unconstitutional despite the Takings Clause. But it's not that these actions are defenseless or that they were done at the time without justification. And the other thing is you will see that the bulk of his reasoning here has gone from shifting the goalpost and inconsistent claims to circular logic now. It's just, he said, you know, basically, the Constitution is the highest law of the land, and it controls their actions, therefore they must comply with it. Well, no shit. Obviously, you know. Um, but the thing is, the Constitution does give Congress the power to define what legal tender is and to issue it. Also, this thing that we never had paper money is bullshit. Before FDR and before the Gold Act, the dollar was still backed by specie. After those acts in 1933 and 1934, it was still backed by specie. During that period, the dollar was still a silver certificate payable to the bearer on demand, and in 1957, we see a reverse to the Gold Act, and people could freely own and use private gold, and the dollar was once again backed by both gold and silver. Now, certainly, every libertarian knows about the Bretton Woods system post-World War II. Uh, this was part of the then-newly formed United Nations, who made the dollar the standard worldwide currency, provided it was backed by gold or silver. And it was. How else could Nixon have closed what is known as the gold window in 1971? If the dollar wasn't payable to the bearer on demand uh, in gold, why did he have to issue an executive order suspending the convertibility of the dollar on demand to the bearer into gold? Now, let me show you what I mean here. So you remember this $20 banknote from 1891, payable in silver? Well, let's take a look at uh, some of his friends. Here, 
is a $10 Federal Reserve note from 1928, payable to the bearer on demand in gold. Here is a $50 Federal Reserve note, also from 1928. Note this is five years before FDR even took office, payable to the bearer on demand. Here is a $5 banknote from 1934. This is the same year they passed the Gold Act and a year after FDR's Executive Order 1602. Now, this note is redeemable in silver to the bearer on demand. We didn't switch from gold and silver coins to worthless paper money overnight. We went from decades of having Federal Reserve Bank notes that were payable in gold or silver on demand all the way from the late 1800s up until 1934 when we had the bank notes become payable only in silver on demand. It wasn't gold, but it's still specie. And just to kind of drive the point across here, here is a $1 bank note from 1957 that is payable to the bearer on demand in silver. So, we had paper money backed by specie before FDR took office. We had paper money backed by specie while FDR was in office. We had paper money payable in specie after FDR left office until 1971. This never changed. Now, back to Jacob's article. He says, moreover, the Constitution does not provide an emergency exception. That means that its provisions remain fully operative and enforceable despite any emergency. Now, this he is basically right about. You know, the president does have emergency powers that can be taken up in a particular emergency, which is a time of war. If a Congress is not in session, uh, and uh, will if the Congress is not in session, they can make emergency actions. And then once the Congress comes back into session, they can choose either to continue with those emergency measures and essentially give uh, sort of congressional approval to it, uh, or they can, uh, at that point, uh, stop it. So the, now the difference is FDR did this. He claimed the Great Depression was basically a war and declared himself to have war powers when he took office. Uh, and that is when and why he issued this executive order. Now, that is bullshit. He had no right to do that. That was facially unconstitutional and morally reprehensible, and I'm not defending that at all. And Jacob goes on to say that, unfortunately, the Supreme Court abrogated its responsibility to enforce the Constitution, which enabled Roosevelt to get away with his monetary power grab. And here, once again, he just repeats the same falsehood he has been spouting the whole time, continuing to hope that if he says something often enough, that will make it true. Should Congress have reviewed his actions? Well, they did. Unfortunately, they made the wrong choice and declared it constitutional. But the Supreme Court saying, um, the Supreme, excuse me, I'm sorry, I said, the Congress should have reviewed his actions. I meant the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court should have reviewed his actions, and they did. Sorry about that. Now, as I was saying, unfortunately, they made the wrong choice, and the Supreme Court ruled that what happened uh, with this gold seizure 
was constitutional. Now, the Supreme Court saying that something facially unconstitutional is constitutional um, is nothing new. So, the, the fact is, once again, though, he still continues to go back to this idea that they enforce the laws. They don't execute the laws. They are not an enforcement arm of the government. They interpret the law. The president enforces the law. You can't be mad at them for uh, essentially, well, you can be mad at them for declaring this act constitutional. And in fact, you should be mad at them for declaring this act constitutional. But what you can't be mad at is that they didn't engage in an act of incredible tyrannical usurpation of a non-delegated power and decide that they can do the president's job for him. That is a point he keeps making over and over, and that is an insane point to make. Now, he uh, finishes off by saying, That's how Americans have come to live under a paper money system, notwithstanding the clear language and contrary in the Constitution. That's also how federal officials have been able to confiscate the income and wealth of the American people through the decades of monetary debasement. Now, I agree that the Federal Reserve is unconstitutional. The fiat money has proven a disaster. And that, essentially, the income tax and inflation, which have both been a product of this uh, Federal Reserve system, are both incredibly evil. You know, I think most people watching this will surely understand that, uh, you know, not only is the income tax a tax, but inflation is a tax. It is known as the hidden tax. That is the reason that today your money is worth one-fourth less than it was 15 years ago. So fiat money and the Federal Reserve are a cancer, creating one of the most diabolical Ponzi schemes of all time. They are engaging in outright theft. We should absolutely be against the Fed and fiat money. But you do this cause a great disservice when you uh, either flagrantly lie or you advocate something uh, unintentionally dishonest, which is really what this article does the entire time. So I think that he is making the same kinds of mistakes that we will rightly criticize both Republicans and Democrats for. That is that he is creating a living constitution based on what he wants it to say and not what it says. He is calling for an absurd act of constitutional usurpation through this weird idea of judicial activism that the uh, judiciary should be the enforcers of the law when that is not their constitutional role. All right, well, anyways, uh, that is pretty much going to do it for me here today. Uh, I want you to remember to be looking out for my upcoming episode. Uh, it's going to be really, really good, I promise you guys. I'm really excited about this next one. Uh, we are going to be talking, again, about the intriguing story of Colonial America's extraordinary monetary innovations. We will be examining contemporaneous law and language and showing how the paper money question was addressed during the framing and the ratification of the Constitution. Uh, this will be a great show, and I'm sure you will not want to miss it. Now, before we go, I just want to say that if you enjoyed the show, uh, please leave me a comment and let me know what you thought about it. And if you didn't enjoy the show, leave me a comment and let me know what you thought about it. I really don't care. Um, either, uh, either way, uh, hit that thumbs up button if you like this. Uh, and 
if you really like this show, uh, I, I ask that you just take a minute and uh, think of one person you know who you think would also really like this show and just uh, send it to them real quick. And if you would help me grow the channel that way, I would really be grateful for all of your help. So, until next time, I have been Lockheed Liberal for Categorical Imperatives, and as always, De Linda S. Pathago.